0: From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. What might the state's response to coronavirus look like? Governor Jared Polis draws parallels to the outbreak of a different virus in Grand Junction.
1: Hundreds, uh, I think even thousands, of teenagers and their parents, because it affected their families who was
0: based in the schools, got a very dramatic illness. That, and Colorado is abolishing the death penalty in our regular conversation at the Capitol. Then a promise from DIA, no long security lines in the revamped terminal. You
2: will wait with a small group of 40 or 50 people in a vestibule that is going to be
0: assigned to you by TSA. Also, as CPR turns 50, we're looking at Colorado then and now. Today, beer.
3: My mom used to drive when she was in college to Colorado to pick up Coors because at that time it was the best beer.
0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. When it comes to coronavirus, what kind of response might we expect from the state? I asked Governor Jared Polis in our regular conversation at the Capitol. He draws parallels to the outbreak of a different virus in the Grand Junction area late last year
1: hundreds uh, I think even thousands of teenagers and their parents because it affected their families it was based in the schools got a very dramatic illness meaning they were they were throwing up they were quite ill it was a short you know 24 48 hour deal but very dramatic symptoms and hundreds or thousands of people came down with that so what what Mesa County schools did and luckily this was just before I believe it was Thanksgiving uh, break they closed down their schools for a period of time and then did a, a thorough cleaning of their schools so our county health and I went there and I met with And, of course, they coordinated with Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment. The decision to close down the schools was the superintendents. But uh, every step of the way, the state was working with them and advising them on the threat. So in
0: that way, the locals acted with leadership from the state— Is that the model applied to coronavirus? And if it got more serious, would your powers kick in?
1: Yeah, we have really, I guess, what you might call distributed government in Colorado, meaning municipalities. There's, I think, over 70 home rule cities. There's counties. There's school districts. They're not formally under the governor, nor should they be. I mean, your school district is under your elected school board. But again, school districts are attentive to public health. They work with county health departments, which are a political unit of the state government, and of course, our Colorado Department of Public Health. We also have a uh, emergency response division that's statewide. This is really the same thing that kicks in when we have a fire, flood, when we have any threat of an epidemic. Uh, I went through a drill uh, in my first couple months where we looked at what happens and walked through a contagion situation where we had a uh, patient, a fake patient, of course, they were plastic, just to be clear. Okay, a a plastic patient. Yeah, plastic patient. Transported from DIA, kept in isolation. I was there and and got to participate in that. So uh, our administration is ready and we work closely with counties and with school districts to prevent an outbreak that would risk the lives of Coloradans.
0: I want to switch topics to talk about the legislature voting to repeal Colorado's death penalty. Uh, You've said that you will sign that bill. I'll note here that the repeal isn't retroactive, so it wouldn't apply to the three men now on death row. But last year, you told us if there was a repeal, you would probably commute those sentences. If the
1: state Republicans and Democrats were to say uh, and I were to sign a bill that said we no longer have the death penalty in Colorado, whether it's formally in the bill or not, I would certainly take that as a strong indication that those who are currently on death row should have their sentences commuted to life in prison.
0: Now, this week in an interview with the Colorado Sun, you seemed a little less definitive. The Sun reported that you said, quoting here, all clemency requests are obviously a very weighty decision. We'll judge them on the individual merits. What changed?
1: Yeah, well, both of those are true. I think clearly the declaration by the legislature that there is no uh, more death penalty that Coloradans can be sentenced to uh, is a statement. And, of course, it's also true that in any clemency case, uh, you need to do it on a case-by-case basis. That, of course, includes any of the people that are on death row.
0: So you've been in office for a bit now, and uh, you certainly are aware of the cases that Colorado has uh, folks on death row. Is there a case that you are ready to make a decision on?
1: Well, they've not, uh, as far as I know, applied for clemency. I I don't believe that. Part of the issue in Colorado is that there's not any way to carry out a death penalty that a jury sentences somebody to. So it's sort of a theoretical penalty. The last one was, uh, I believe, in the late 90s. What do you mean by that? The drugs that are prescribed in law as the method of execution are not commercially available to Colorado. It leaves the open the possibility of other means, but doesn't specify what those means are. Um, the legislature needs to either fix the death penalty so that we can execute people or end the death penalty. They've chosen to end it. Uh, either one of those works. But this limbo that we were in uh, was
0: not a good solution for Colorado. So do you take it as any kind of mandate that when Colorado, with your signature, repeals the death penalty, the three people on death row are a little closer to life in prison in your mind Ethically,
1: Well, again, absent the legislature fixing the death penalty, it's very unlikely that uh, those sentences would be able to carry it out. There's no legal means to carry out the death penalty in Colorado right now.
0: So you're saying it's almost a de facto life in prison. Uh,
1: you know, I guess it's a question of whether the— The sword of Damocles hovering over their heads is an additional punishment that a jury assigned because, you know, they they know that they have that uncertainty. But yes, it's a very small amount of uncertainty because, you know, the state hasn't carried this out in a quarter century and doesn't currently have a way of doing so.
0: The legislature's debate was probably more intense because two lawmakers, Tom Sullivan and Rhonda Fields, each lost a son to murder. Both Representative Sullivan and State Senator Fields opposed repeal. Here's Rhonda Field speaking to CPR before the Senate vote.
2: It's personal. The three people that are on death row, two of them are there for uh, murdering my son, and they've been found guilty. Not once, but twice, because there is a death penalty phase. So 12 citizen jurors came together, and they all came back with a unanimous vote that um, they're
0: guilty. So the men convicted of killing Senator Fields' son and his fiance are on death row, So they could potentially receive clemency. How do you, you know, knowing Senator Fields personally, working with her frequently, how do you talk to her about this? And did she ever make you question? So, you know,
1: when you look at the families and you listen to families of the victims and Senator Fields and Tom Sullivan are are sadly not unique in this regard. You know, there's a diversity of opinion. Some feel the perpetrator of the crime against their loved one should rot in prison for the rest of their lives. Others feel that they uh, should have their life taken. But, you know, the were the theater shooting. So this guy killed 12 people and he didn't get it, and yet somebody that killed two people does get it. And that sort of caused me to wonder, well, why would somebody who killed 12 people not get it, but you kill, you know, two people and you get it? That doesn't seem right. So, um, you know, in the name of equal justice, I think it's important that we— it, we end this anachronistic um, method of punishment, which you know is gone anyway. At some point, it's on the way out. Uh, let's embrace the future and, and join the nations of the world that, and this, many
0: of the states that have already abolished the death penalty. Colorado's Democratic Governor Jared Polis speaking with me at the Capitol. More from Polis next week as Colorado Matters broadcasts from Colorado Springs. We'll tackle issues of particular importance to southern Colorado, like the future of Space Command and a police shooting that remains controversial in Colorado Springs. At just 25 years old, it's already gone through a divorce and is getting a facelift. I'm talking about Denver International Airport, which opened 25 years ago today. The facelift? DIA is overhauling its terminal. The divorce? Well, Denver parted ways with the developer. And they're still negotiating how much the separation should cost. So where do things go from here? Kim Day is DIA's chief executive. We spoke at City Hall. Kim, thanks for being with us again. My pleasure. Travelers at DIA have seen terminal construction at a standstill since the city fired the developer. On Twitter... Fred back of Denver says, it's ugly, and I wonder why they bothered in the first place. Uh, so Kim Day, remind Fred and other listeners what the goal is behind the overhaul of the terminal.
2: Number one is safety and security. We need to get that checkpoint out of the Great Hall. Why? It's just too visible, vulnerable, open. If someone wanted to commit some mischief, they could clearly do that overlooking hundreds of passengers in queues, and the whole TSA organization. So we want them in a more private place. Uh, Number two, we are growing. I think you know, Ryan, we're adding 39 gates right now. And as you add gate capacity, you need to add terminal capacity, right? Those people are going to the gates, go through the terminal first, baggage systems, all of those things.
0: I'll just say that there is a big interest in those gates by United and Southwest already, gates essentially that don't yet exist. Correct, already leased.
2: So we need to increase the capacity of the terminal building in order to accommodate all those passengers that are going to be coming in the next 5 or 10 years. And then the third thing is... Everything at the airport is 25 years old, including the HVAC system in the terminal, the PA system, you know, every escalator. I felt young
0: at 25. (laughs) I guess that's not true for an airport. Not
2: true for an airport or a system. You know, every escalator, every elevator. So we need to go in there and replace some of the aging systems that uh, have really had a
0: nice life, but time to move on. Will a portion of the Great Hall still be open to people who aren't ticketed? Yes. Okay. Ben Miller of Denver tweets, the construction has just become something most of us frequent travelers are used to, a backdrop of sorts. It's the huge spike in traffic from drop-offs and the increasingly long security lines that are really tough. So Kim Day, does this plan address drop-off congestion and the long lines, no matter how vulnerable?
2: So, the new checkpoints will have new equipment, faster, more efficient. There will never be these big lines again once we move upstairs. Okay, In fact, mark
0: her words it, there will never be these big lines again. And that's because we're going to segregate
2: you into what we're calling vestibules. So you will wait with a small group of 40 or 50 people in a vestibule that is going to be assigned to you by TSA. It'll be a total different experience. I am i can't describe it very well verbally, uh, but what I can tell you is TSA is working with us to do what they're saying it will be the new prototype for security huh. in this
0: country. And for on drop-off the, congestion, yeah.
2: So on the curbs, we're trying to do a lot of things. Uh, one of the we just recently did is we moved Uber and Lyft off of level six. They're now down on five. And so they're not so.
0: competing with sort of uh, everyone else. Right. So we space. saw a
2: huge improvement there. We're also doing some things. I don't know how many listeners know, but... Before you even get to the terminal, you can go off of Pena. We will check your bags for free. We will give you a boarding pass for free and you can go park any place you want. What we're trying to do is get you not to spend time in our lobby, just to go park your car and then go right to security. A much improved experience, particularly when you've got you know a big family, a lot of luggage. this makes
0: it so much of skis. Why
2: would you ever want to lug them when we'll take them out of the back of your car ourselves?
0: Does the re-envisioning of the hall, though, do anything about drop-off congestion in and of itself?
2: Uh, right now, there's no improvement to the curb, but we are taking certain users off the curb. So that gives us more capacity.
0: The city took control of this project, uh, then hired a new general contractor. Will construction resume in March, as I've been reading? Yes. That, yes. Okay. James Constis tweeted, because of the construction, that he has stopped flying unless absolutely necessary. Do you fear the prolonged construction may turn people off to DIA for a time?
2: You know what's so interesting? I'm sorry James is having a bad experience, but we do passenger surveys, and it's a very small percentage of passengers that say it detracts from their experience at all. Most passengers say either they didn't notice it, which is a little crazy to me. I don't know how you could not notice it. I I agree. uh, Or that it had no impact on them. So no, we we don't think it's going to impact the flying public.
0: When will this project be complete?
2: I don't know that answer yet. We'll know that in a few months, but as I sit here today, we don't have that. Why can't you say that? Our contractor's just getting on board and realize this is a contractor that's taking over a space that another contractor put things in, right, and did some work. Plus, I'll tell you, we are looking at changing a bit the design that the previous developer
0: had conceived. Can you give me a range? I mean, are we talking, you know, two years from now, five years from now, just a sense? Well, so all the contracts
2: we let go through 2024. So we will beat the end of
0: 2024. Okay. Denverite reports the divorce has already cost $128 million, which DIA has paid to Great Hall Partners the previous contractor. And Denverite reports that when all is said and done, it'll be closer to $170 million to $210 million. Are are those figures you can confirm? No,
2: because we're still in negotiations with the developer. But what I'd love people to understand is what we are paying for. First, we're paying for all the work that is in place. The developer worked for a year. They did construction. We now have to pay them for the work that they completed there.
0: Is that work you get to build on or do you have to undo that?
2: There is some work that will be redone, but the majority of it we will build upon. Okay. There is equipment and materials that is in warehouses that it was already purchased. We have to pay them for that work. We also have to pay them for uh, what are called termination fees, breakage fees. So they demobilize, and there are costs associated with that, whether it's you know equipment they bought for the job that they can't use, employees maybe that they hired that they have to terminate in their severance space. So they're... We're not just paying them to go away. We are paying them for work that they have done that we then assume, which means we don't have to pay for that later.
0: You don't have a final figure on that yet? I do not. Is 210 million in the ballpark?
2: We have said it would be a range of 170 to 210, to 210. And we still believe we'll be in that
0: range. Okay. My dad taught me that when something goes awry, you should ask, what's my part in this? Kim Day, what's your part in the terminal project hitting the turbulence that it did?
2: So I've got to say I'm not allowed to talk about that right now. Again, we are in a negotiation with our developer partner, uh, and so I've been told not to discuss it. Who
0: has told you that?
2: The, the lawyers.
0: The lawyers? Yes. Okay. Mm-hmm. Citing CBS4, you apparently stood before city leaders and took some responsibility for the project going awry. Is that something you can confirm, that reporting?
2: I will not talk about the conversation we had in a closed executive
0: session with council that was supposed to be um, confidential. Do some rough math for me. How much more will this project cost in the end versus your first estimates? And are taxpayers on the hook for that difference?
2: So there's no taxpayer money at all used at the airport ever. All but passenger
0: of the- fees would be a part of this, right?
2: So passengers pay a fee on their ticket that comes to us, but mostly it's the money we make off of parking and off of coffee and off of the landing fee that the airlines pay or the rent they pay in the terminal.
0: How much more will the project cost than from the earliest days and the earliest estimates? Again,
2: until our contractor really gets in there and the scope is finalized, we don't know.
0: You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we're speaking with CEO of Denver International Airport, Kim Day. So this Great Hall project was a public-private partnership. We hear a lot about those these days, where government gets together with a private contractor to do really big stuff. The train to the plane was also that, for instance. I think there are folks questioning whether public-private partnerships are inherently a problem. So
2: every public-private partnership is different, and they're done for different reasons. There are really good reasons to do them and projects that it makes a lot of sense. It doesn't make a lot of sense everywhere. I think one of the things that was unusual about ours is we didn't need the money. We make over a billion dollars a year. We've got 500 days of operating cash in the bank. So we're very financially solid. We wanted someone to take on the risk of building in a building that is 25 years old and is 24-7, 365 operational, in the middle of all this, with all the movements and all the interface with the airline. So we brought someone on to do that.
0: That remains the goal, by the way, with the new contractor, I assume.
2: So the new contractor is in a very different situation where they are a traditional contractor reporting to us. So they are not taking on unusual
0: risk. Okay. So that the, the risk retransfers to DIA. Do I have yes. that right? Okay. Does that worry you?
2: No. I think we are in a much better position we are today than we were a few years ago to take this on. I think I have a much stronger team at the airport. I have an incredible team actually overseeing this job that I would trust with anything. Today, the risk doesn't worry me as much as it did
0: years ago. You've managed, I I think, of two large capital projects during your time at DIA. I really should say three, because there's the gate expansion going on now. Which
2: is the largest one we've ever done at $1.5 billion.
0: I think they open in about 2022. Uh, They they will be
2: operational. the project will be done next year, but operational second quarter 2022.
0: So then there's the terminal overhaul we've been talking about. And then I think back to the construction of the airport hotel and train station. And that one hit rough patches, too. There was a, another divorce from the kind of superstar architect Santiago Calatrava. I want to note, Denver's mayor still has faith in you. Here's what he told me. You know, I have confidence What everybody works for me. Otherwise, they wouldn't be here. So he has faith in you. Why should the people of Colorado who look at some of the major projects under your tenure and say, this hasn't gone smoothly?
2: So the architect leaving really had no impact on the project for the Hotel and Transit Center. That project came in less than 10% over budget We feel that's an incredible success. And i got to tell you, that hotel prints money. Uh, it does so much better than the performer ever intended. That train is amazing. The RTD has added cars earlier than they ever expected. So that project is a whole success. I'd also say I mean, the gates are on time and on budget. I, I don't see us having any hiccups except we terminated uh, a partner in year one of a 34-year contract that wasn't doing well. And I call that a success.
0: DIA turns 25 this week. I understand there's a flight to Nassau, Bahamas coming. United starts March 7th. And to Rome. Norwegian starts March
2: 31st to Rome. Yes.
0: There you go. Big day. Two new routes. How is the grounding of the 737 MAX affecting DIA, if at all? Southwest in
2: particular, who has an all 737 uh, fleet, fleet has yeah. definitely been impacted. It has slowed their growth, but they're still growing.
0: It has slowed Southwest's growth at DIA or do everywhere. You mean, oh, everywhere, mm-hmm.
2: including DIA.
0: So much development is springing up around the airport. You know, housing and industry and hospitality. To what extent, Kim Day? Do you think the mayor's vision of an airport city, an aerotropolis? taking shape. Uh, You know, the idea that the airport won't just be alone in a wheat field, but at the heart of a new community. To what extent do you think that's taking shape?
2: Oh my gosh, yes. Go out there, drive around. I mean, the Gaylord for one thing. That's a giant
0: hotel and conference center.
2: Yes, right off of airport property, but uh, on the edge of Aurora and all up and down tower, that is all taking off, including the development that's happened at the 61st and Peña Rail Station. Yes, so we are seeing the mayor's dream come to
0: fruition. Is that your dream? Do you share that with him? Absolutely.
2: I mean, that's what a, what an airport does is it feeds the community and creates even more jobs. It's all those indirect jobs that are surrounding the airport that add to that $33.5 billion economic development.
0: Beyond the Great Hall Project being finished and those gates, what's your hope for DIA in the next 25 years?
2: So, you know, our airlines are growing so fast, we're saying, what happens after 39 gates? We're now planning. uh, The next step would be to go Concourse C West and redo A East. And then what comes next? I think you may know that the original plan for the airport had a Concourse D. uh, But the train that operates today between the concourses and the terminals but can't take a concourse D so it doesn't
0: go to a D right now or can't no. well
2: we could physically make it go to D but there's not enough capacity in that train oh. to do that so we're rethinking what that next step might be thanks for being with us my pleasure thank you
0: Kim Day, CEO of Denver International Airport, speaking with me at City Hall, as for DIA's preparations for coronavirus. Day says her team has trained for outbreaks, but that the CDC has not flagged the airport as particularly vulnerable. She is braced for ticket cancellations and a dip in air travel, and says if push comes to shove, DIA has a financial cushion with about 500 days of operating capital on hand. And Colorado Matters continues in the next half hour with beer, then and now. I'm Ryan Warner. You're with CPR News.
1: Public Radio is flourishing across the country and here in Colorado. Hi, I'm Abigail Beckman, Morning Edition host on KRCC in Colorado Springs. And
0: I'm Mike Lamp, your Morning Edition host here on CPR News.
1: KRCC is partnering with Colorado Public Radio.
4: With our new partnership, you'll get a greater focus on Colorado's issues from both the KRCC and CPR newsrooms.
1: And you'll hear it from Wyoming to New Mexico and all across the state with a new coordinated weekday schedule on CPR News and KRCC.
0: Listen Monday and see the details at CPR.org. You hear the phrase the Napa Valley of Beer tossed around a lot about this state. It's a catchy description with more than 400 breweries here. Well, as Colorado Public Radio turns 50, we're looking at the state then and now. So today, how the beer scene has changed in half a century. I'm going to admit something that will get me run out of this state other than the occasional lambic, and a cardamom saison that's no longer in production, I'm just not much of a beer drinker. But my co-host, Avery Lil, is. And so she went to Falling Rock Tap House in Denver, which has more than 90 beers on tap, to meet up with some Colorado beer experts.
3: I am Betsy Lay. I'm the co-founder and owner of Lady Justice Brewing.
4: Jonathan Shikes. I've been a writer, reporter, and editor for the past 25 years or so. And I have a book on the history of Denver beer and brewing That is coming out on March 2nd. I'm Thomas Covan,
5: I'm assistant professor of history at Colorado State University and we're gonna open a student exhibition next week on March 6th about the history of beer in Fort Collins and Northern Colorado.
6: Jonathan, when we were deciding where to do this interview, you said that Falling Rock is the king of craft beer in Denver. Is that just because they have so many options?
4: It's a little bit of both. They have been around the longest when it comes to craft beer. They opened with the goal of having no crap on tap, which is their their motto. (laughs) And they opened in 1997 when there wasn't really a craft beer scene in Denver. There were a few breweries and maybe one or two bars, but Biling Rock opened with 75 different craft beers on tap. It was a game changer.
3: And Thomas and Betsy,
4: have you guys been here before?
3: I have. I had uh, Lady Justice beer on tap here last summer, which was really fun. Even before then, I mean, I did my undergrad at University of Denver, and we used to come here, you know, later on, of age, of course, and it was just amazing to have that available.
5: This is a very uh, rich and colorful place, with so many bottles. I was struck when I entered the room, that's the first time I come here. I'm relatively new to Colorado, and I was struck by, you know, the, the scene. So many beers, so many tap handles. This remind me of these public houses in Europe, you know, these, these Uh Very cozy atmosphere. I, I love it. You know, there's
6: just bottles and tap handles all over the walls. Okay, well, we can't do an interview about beer without drinking a little beer. So here's what we're going to do. There are three different beers on the table, each one representing a different major movement in Colorado's beer history. And as we move through the decades, we'll switch beers. Okay, so Coors Banquet beer. Cheers. Cheers. Cheers.
5: Oh yeah, this tastes like party beer. <laughs> Thomas, you're shaking your head. It's not my style of beer. <laughs> no, it's too light, too mainstream, too old. For too me.
6: old. Okay, well, we're starting this retrospective in 1970. That's the year that CPR first went on the air, and all year we're celebrating the station's 50th birthday by diving into Colorado's history. We picked Coors Banquet to get us started. Um, why do you think this beer represents that decade and all the history leading up to it?
5: I just have one image. For me, it's 1968, when you had students at Colorado State University, where it was not legal to drink beer, not even 3.2, and they wanted to break the law. So in 1968, October 18, they bring packs of course and drunk beers on, you know on campus and broke the law that led to the end of prohibition 1969 so they used Coors to break the law that led to craft brewery which is paradoxical for me
3: my mom used to drive when she was in college she went to the university of missouri for her undergrad and they used to drive to colorado to pick up Coors because at that time it was the best beer like that is what people wanted and then they would bootleg it over the kansas and missouri state lines
4: Coors is, uh, was founded in 1873, and they uh, have been the, probably the beer of choice for most people living in Colorado and growing up here. When I was growing up, one of the rites of passage when you turned 18, for me since I was uh, old enough to, to drink 3.2 beer back in the 80s, was to go on a tour of, of the Coors plant and to try the free beers at the end. So I think it's been a rite of passage for, for generations of, of kids.
6: And what about it? I mean, so, Thomas, you're shaking your head because it's a light beer. But at the time, is that what people were craving? Yeah.
3: Might have been all people knew, honestly. I mean, this is, this is just before craft beer cracks onto the scene again. So people are drinking. My understanding is uh, post-Prohibition loggers that came back after Prohibition ended, which was primarily... This style, mm-hmm. so I don't know if I don't know if people knew that they had other options to drink, or if there commercially were other options.
5: There were very few breweries after Prohibition, and you know the number of beers available was not like today, right? And mentioning beers, they wanted something light, something mainstream, and you know, of course, banquet is very iconic of that time period.
6: And are there other names that we think of now that they were competing with then?
4: Well, in the in the 1970s, Anheuser-Busch was was big. There were still a few of the old brands like Schlitz and Meisterbrau, but a lot of these famous old beer brands were buying each other up, and the number of breweries declined all the way down to about 80 uh, in the late 70s. So that's all that was left after all the consolidation. And the entire country. Yep.
6: And in North Colorado, Prohibition had just ended in the 1970s. Thomas, explain why no one was drinking in Fort Collins region until then.
5: Well, Fort Collins and Northern Colorado, like Greeley and uh, even Boulder, you know, Prohibition in Boulder ended in the late 60s as well, it was a very different scene. You know, people were more conservative. You know, there were small towns, uh, agricultural college in Fort Collins, and they they had an issue with, with beer and alcohol. And Prohibition started in 1896 in Fort Collins, right? So Fort Collins was almost dry for 73 years. So they they changed in the 60s because of, you know, new students, new population in Fort Collins. But, you know, it was not yet the craft beer scene that started more in the 1980s. So all they had to do and drink in the 1970s were like 3.2 or mainstream beers like Coors Banquet and and so on. So, yes, Fort Collins in Northern Colorado was very different like 50 years ago. You see a dramatic change in 20, 30 years.
6: Now, Betsy, in the 1970s, what do you know about the presence of female brewers at this time? Were there any?
3: In the 1970s, I think you're starting to see a rise in home brewing, and that really takes off in the 80s. So I think you're seeing what is actually a a return to original brewing. When Talk about going back even 10,000 years ago, all the way up until the Industrial Revolution, women were the primary brewers in society. And so what I think is really interesting is homebrewing sort of brings back maybe what's sort of this ancestral thing inside of women to create. So I think I think you're seeing women brewing on a homebrew level for sure. As far as I know, women aren't involved in founding in the business side of brewery. Besides Carol Strout, there are a couple of others, maybe in Oregon, maybe in Utah, but we don't we don't see a rise in women in the professional brewing side until until we get a little bit later but there are some wonderful pioneers who started that for us really in the early and mid 80s i love that you bring us even back 10,000 years ago because there's even an egyptian
6: goddess of beer ninkasi Uh (laughs) homebrewing was federally legalized in 1978 this is also when charlie papazian started to get a reputation in boulder for being the beer guy He'd been homebrewing for a while already under the radar. What does he mean to the beer scene?
4: He means everything to the beer scene. Uh, He started the American Homebrewers Association. He started what is today the Brewers Association, which is the trade group for for all craft breweries. He wrote the book on on homebrewing, and he fostered the kind of spirit, community spirit, that craft brewing has had for, for decades.
6: What is that spirit? Can you describe it?
4: To me, that spirit is one of a lot of different people trying to get along and help each other out, to bring everyone together over the camaraderie that comes with drinking a beer and working together even if you have different companies.
3: And I think that happens a lot. You see that in the industry today professionally, but I think that you can point to Charlie and sort of the early American Home Brewers Association and Brewers Association just the way they, just their personalities and wanting to sort of foster this community idea. I think you see that has seeped into the professional craft beer life mm. in Colorado today.
5: Yeah, I mean, whenever you try to organize an event with Charlie, the room is packed. We, we organized an event last year. he's going to come back to Fort Collins and I know the room will be packed. Everybody's coming with a book, his book, to be signed because he's the father of Hamburg. He was doing classes of homebrewing when it was still illegal in the 70s, (laughs) doing the beer and steer in Boulder, having people coming to Boulder to homebrew. I think he inspired generations, I guess, plural, of of people to brew and to homebrew. And those people created the craft breweries in the 1980s. Like, 95% of the craft breweries in Fort Collins were created by homebrewers. So you have a clear connection between Charlie, homebrewing, and, and the craft revolution.
6: Let's move us forward a decade. Are there any craft breweries opening up in the 1980s?
4: Yeah, the 1980s saw the very first few cluster of breweries to open, in, at least in Colorado. The first one had been Boulder Beer in 1979, but in 1988 Wincoop Brewing here in Denver opened up, and Carver Brewing in Durango, and three breweries in Fort Collins opened that year. Odell was, the, uh, I think, the first. Cooper Smith's and Old Colorado Brewery, those, those all opened in the 80s.
6: And at this point, does it feel like the Colorado beer scene is on the brink of a major shift?
5: Yes, yes, they were. I mean, as you said, Jonathan, 1989, three new breweries, that changes the scene in Fort Collins. You have craft, you have new kind of beers, you have 90 shillings. In 1991, you have New Belgium, but, but that changes everything because you can not only drink Coors and Banquet, but you can try something different. And those people were humblers. That's the beginning of the, of the change in Fort Collins and, and in Colorado.
6: So, this seems like a good time to transition from our Coors Banquet to our next beer, New Belgium's Lapoli.
5: Do you want my Coors?
3: No. Mmm. <laughs> <laughs> that is a very different beer than the Coors Banquet. Wow. I remember the first time I had this beer. It was at the brewery. Uh, we had taken some friends up to Fort Collins to... Anytime friends from out of town would come in town, we would go up to Fort Collins and do the Odell and the New Belgium tour. And we luckily knew somebody who was a tour guide, and we got really behind-the-scenes tours of it. And I, I got to try one right off the line, I think even pre-bottled. And it was, I was just like, what is this? Because it was the first sort of sour ale that I'd ever heard of. I didn't even know that was a thing yet. Yeah, this is, this sort of, to me, sets, a, sets the standard for sours, at least on the Colorado scene. I could be wrong, but. It's sour without being
6: fruity. I feel like almost every sour I've tried is a very strong like, fruit flavor. And this is, I don't
5: know, it's reminds me more of like mm-hmm. ruddy. For me, La-, La Folie is the symbol of, of New Belgium, the connection with, with Belgium. Uh, La Folie was made by Peter Buchart, you know, who's Belgian, came to the US, and there is this sour type, which, is, which was new. It's a very specific time of Belgian beer, like Lambic and Goose, very different from what people had in, in Colorado. And that's the thing about, you know, New Belgium. Jeff Lebisch went to Europe, brought back this recipe about the Chime, the Trappist, and made, you know, Abbey in the late 1990s. So that's the thing about New Belgium, this connection between local, small town, Fort Collins, and Europe, an international connection. That, that's very specific.
6: But see, I love this thing that you said about like remembering the first time that you had it and that beer kind of holds memories. Mm-hmm.
3: I remember the very first craft beer I ever had was at a house party at DU and somebody handed me what I think was a Breckenridge Honey Ale. This is probably at 2002. And I remember tasting it and not liking it because all I had known before was Budweiser. And I was like, what is this? This is just so gross and then I had a fat tire and I was like okay I understand this now and that was that was the beginning of it for me. So
6: mm. Let's go back to the history of beer now we're in the 90s and this is really when the craft beer scene exploded all across Colorado right?
4: Yeah it absolutely did breweries started to be uh, were founded everywhere all in through the mountain towns in Denver Fort Collins down to Durango Colorado Springs it was it was definitely the heyday of the early part of, of craft brewing.
6: And what makes a craft beer a craft beer? Like, is it the styles they're experimenting with or the fact that it's a small operation?
4: The, the main thing that makes a craft beer a craft beer is, is that it's made by a small company. There are a lot of arguments over what makes a craft beer. Coors would tell you that their small batch beers are made in a craft style. The majority of the independent breweries that are out there, and there are going on 8,000 of them in the country now, would disagree and say that it's a, being a small company having a all your hands on and doing something that is very local and a very part of your community that makes something a craft beer.
6: And wasn't there a thought back in the day that the American brewing industry would eventually be monopolized by a few companies like Coors? That didn't happen, did it?
4: No. Not yet. <laughs> yeah, not not yet. In in my book I, I when I, I work up through the through the seventies to when Boulder Beer opened in 1979 as the 43rd it had the 43rd brewing license after prohibition and from then on the the number of of breweries which was down around 80 or 88 just began to skyrocket to to where we are today
6: i think it's so
3: interesting that you said not yet is that still a concern I mean, I think if you're a craft brewery and you are successful enough to get to a size where people start to notice you on a national scale, or if you are encroaching on the market of a big brewery, you might find yourself in a little bit of trouble in terms of having to really decide if, if being sold is something that you're open to. And I think a lot of mid to large sized craft breweries are, are starting to have to make decisions they maybe never thought they would have to make even 10 years ago. For me, I see a lot of brewers really struggle with what size is the right size, and what kind of distribution is the right distribution, and how to how to handle those things. And so we're seeing really successful, really well-loved breweries getting bought up by these larger corporations, and it's heartbreaking on one hand, and then on the other hand, it's like, okay, well, they have a decision to make. They have employees to look out for in their own bank accounts, because a lot of them are putting themselves into debt to do this. And so. I think there's some stuff yet to be seen. So you could essentially succeed your way out of the craft
6: brewing scene.
3: You might, yeah.
6: So let's move on to the beer of today. Man, we're moving so quickly through the history of beer. We only get sips of each beer. Our last beer is the Comrade Superpower. No one's so pouring out No one's to support this one Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Cheers. 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 Hoppy. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's a lot lighter than the La
3: Folie, but not like the Coors Banquet. <laughs> nope. Nothing is lighter than the Coors Banquet. What about so Coors, Coors Light? Yeah, Coors Light, that's what I was going to say, too. When we go to the baseball game, I order a Coors Heavy, and they're like, what? <laughs> what about this one signifies the
6: contemporary brewing scene in Colorado?
4: To me, Comrade is one of the breweries that's really turned the corner for, for craft breweries. They took the, some of the older traditions from the 90s and the early 2000s and, and the really hoppy beers and they took more modern hops, very contemporary American style of hops, and just blew them out and, and made this, this beer in particular, Superpowers, one of the best IPAs that's made in Colorado. It is both, to me, I always call it balanced and unbalanced because it, it is unbelievably hoppy. But it, it really, it's just a delight to drink. It's, it's my jam.
3: And I think this beer, too, also signifies... This is the style that sort of broke craft beer back onto the scene. So it, this is a West Coast-style IPA. It's clear and it's crisp, and it has the, the piney notes and also this the citrus fruit notes in it. And when California when those little California microbreweries started popping up, this was the beer that they were brewing. And so for me, this also sort of represents the new sort of frontier of craft beer that we were seeing in in the maybe early to mid-2000s. I think this is probably hoppier than what, you know, Anchor was probably originally brewing back in the day, but uh, it's a pretty good showing of the style and how it's evolved today. And there is so much competition on the craft scene now. How do brewers set themselves apart? In many ways, through style. Winning a medal at something like Great American Beer Fest can put you on the map for a long time. Some people do it with gimmicks, some people do it with uh, trends, whether they're <laughs> good or not. I think people do whatever they can to bring in a market.
5: That's something very powerful in Fort Collins. You can either choose your style, like Belgian or German beer, like Thuy or Prost breweries, or you can also be very much involved in the communities, right? The sustainability, the water reuse, and doing things for your community is very important for the small breweries. And, and that's, that's their market. We were talking about what's the future of craft. And one discussion is you know to stay local and to work on your community networks. And that's, I think that's so far the recipe for success in Fort Collins, to work on your community festivals, your community you know, volunteering, and, and water reuse, which is very important in Fort Collins, or Colorado, which is you know, climate change and water reuse. That's something that microbreweries have been working on for the last ten years.
6: And Thomas, you started getting into this a little bit, but I understand that environmental concerns also play a big role in today's brewing culture. How else are breweries thinking about this?
5: And just when you think about how much water you need to make beer, right? Uh, that's a lot. So they have to breweries have to think about water use, especially in a state where you know water use is, is an issue. And you know, global warming and the future, next years, the price for cereals, the, the price for water use is something that they have to to be thinking about.
3: Yeah, there are concerns um, every few years about hop supplies and, and growing patterns, and if there's going to be enough hops to go around. And if there are enough companies able, enough farms able to sustain what's needed. And so you'll find year to year different styles, uh, different varieties of hops will jump up and down in price just based off of the availability. And so there are some years where a year or two previous, these hops were really, really popular and everybody wanted them. And then all of a sudden you really can't get them for a while. And so it it can change how a brewer uh, shapes a recipe or deals with consistency of the product too. It's a problem where if you brew a beer with galaxy hops in it, and then one year galaxy hops aren't available anymore, how are you gonna make your beer taste the same way it did in 2019 as it did in 2018?
6: And Betsy, I think that Lady Justice Brewing is an interesting example of the way that breweries look very different now than they did 50 years ago. Lady Justice is entirely run by women and brewing beer was not the primary reason you and your partners opened it, right?
3: Yeah, no, not at all. Beer was was the answer to a problem that we were seeing. So we all worked in nonprofit. We were AmeriCorps Vistas together, raising money for a really cool organization during the recession. And so there was no grant money. And so we would, with the very little money that we had left in our pockets, we would go to Vine Street and get a beer and just complain about how hard our job was. And so... One of us at some point, I think it was Jen, she was just like, look at all the people in this room. Everybody's willing to spend their money on this beer. Like, how great would it be if some of that money could come back and go to the nonprofit we were working for? And so we needed to solve a fundraising problem, and, and the answer to that was beer just because we drank it a lot. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so even in a recession, people are still drinking beers,
6: the idea is. Yeah, maybe even more beer. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and which causes is Lady Justice supporting right now?
3: We are supporting all sorts of things. So we choose nonprofits that we support in a few different ways. We have grants that we give out. And then the other way that we do it is through our community-supported beer membership program. We will choose three or four organizations ahead of time that we'll give money to. And so our members will know before they buy your membership where the money going. And so it helps our members align their dollars with their own beliefs. And Lady Justice is actually growing, right? You all just announced last week that you found a tap room. We did. We are moving into a tap room on East Colfax. It's in the Aurora Cultural Arts District. And we're hoping that the grand opening date is April 18th. That is exciting. Well, thank you all so much for chatting
6: with me for a history of beer and a history of Colorado kind of through that lens. Yeah,
4: absolutely.
0: Thanks for
3: having us. Thank you.
0: Betsy Lay owns Lady Justice Brewing. We also heard from Jonathan Shikes, author of Denver Beer, out March 2nd, and CSU professor Thomas Kova, who's putting on an exibi- exhibition with his students about northern Colorado beer. That opens March 6th in Fort Collins. All this year, to mark CPR's 50th anniversary, we're looking at the state then and now. But as much as Avery might wish, the segments won't all feature beer.
4: Good night.
1: In a bar alone I'm sitting Apart from the laughter and the cheer
4: Scenes from the past rise before me Watching the bubbles in my
0: beer that's Colorado Matters for today. There are so many ways to keep in touch with the show at Colorado Matters on Twitter. I'm at CPR Warner, and Avery is at Avery Lil. We're on Facebook, CPR News, and if you have story ideas or feedback, you can find all the ways to get in touch at CPR.org/connect. Our executive producer is Carl Bielich Michael Hughes is our production manager. I'm Ryan Warner. Thanks for spending time with us. You're with Colorado Public Radio, and cheers!